Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. Hey, nice to be with all of you. Uh, we're actually on the fourth installment um, of our, well, I believe it will turn out to be a five-parter on the theme of control. Control as discernible from Genesis 4. Uh, control is something uh, we all desire in some form. Some of us um, might be called control freaks. Uh, others are Good with a little less control, maybe control over a few important things um, like family safety or or career trajectory. Unfortunately, I think the pandemic has uh, deprived us of almost all control of our lives. I hope the messages have been kind of illustrative or helpful uh, to kind of navigate some of these challenges of today. But last time, um, while covering the same set of scripture verses that Andrew read, uh, we considered the damage, the damage, the harm caused by Cain's sin upon numerous victims, not just upon Abel. Uh, we spent a bunch of time thinking about the following entities, quote-unquote, entities that Cain harmed with the murder of people. Of course, Abel himself lost his life. And then the Lord. Um, it's hard to theologically say that Cain harmed or damaged God, so I put that in parentheses, but certainly the relationship with God yeah, was uh, totally messed up by Cain. And Cain, as Peter mentioned, harmed himself, tore his own soul. Um, the ground, the ground became uh, an enmity, uh, more so than when Adam sinned, now Cain's sin, right, uh, caused this uh, alienation, this separation from the ground, and then damage to family. He uh, lost both children, both sons at the same time, and just kind of upon society, upon humanity, what it means to interrelate crime upon other people and then progeny uh, just the negative example that Cain sets for his descendants we still see that today murder is still painful and damaging thing of all 
in our experience. I originally planned to kind of just have one message on this um, topic of damage control, but uh, as I realized, I thought extending it out and having two messages on it would be helpful. So today, last time we talked about damage, today I want to talk about control or how to control, contain uh, that uh, damage. Uh, today, uh, in, in our world, um, this term damage control, um, it is used in like corporate and media sectors um, as a way to kind of manage perceptions, right? How to keep the fallout from uh, getting too big. And it's similar like to Keynes like that. His attempts at damage control are, are very, he's very worried about what will happen to him, how to minimize right, the blowback, the consequences on himself. But I think I would argue that God engages in damage control as well, right? Um, but it, the underlying motive is mercy. That's the, the theme of mercy towards Cain. So I hope you can see that what God does, right, even if it looks very harsh or unloving, it actually is loving. It actually is uh, protected, it's purposeful. So I want to explore damage control in four movements, if you will, from the narrative. So uh, first I'm going to talk about the curse, again, the curse that you know God placed on Cain. And then Cain's response of complaint, and he's not happy with what God uh, declares, the penalty. And then what I call the corrective, right? How God is trying to keep Cain from being avenged or evil being avenged by the death of Cain. That's kind of a, a, an attempt to rectify or, or stop the narrative of bloodshed and violence to correct it. And then Cain's ultimate reaction, which is to build a city. And of course, I'm going to come out a little negative on that. It's kind of nice. We've got four C words. <laughs> I don't know if that helps you remember things or it actually confuses the mind, it works both ways uh, for me, but curse and corrective is going to be um, God's damage control and complaint of city is going to be king. So let's start with that. Uh, let's take it in the order that they appear in the text. God took proclaims a curse upon king for defiling the ground with evil's blood. The ground would resist king's efforts to make uh, it produce crops. Debarred from his livelihood, Cain would have to find different means to make ends meet. Effectively, Cain would be exiled from Eden, where he would not be able to uh, survive there. Now, whenever, uh, if you like me, whenever I see the word curse or the concept of curse in the Bible, my first reaction is one of somberness and sobriety. I mean, think about the seriousness of the offense someone must have committed in order to elicit a curse from God. Here, Cain's uh, fratricide, killing a, a brother or a sibling, was just that kind of serious crime. God could not uh, allow that to stand unpunished. There had to be consequences, a penalty to what God had done against Abel, against society, against humanity. Uh, since Cain denied any responsibility for his family, Right. Cain actually is denied access right, to his family because he 
impacted society, King had to become a pariah. Imagine if God let King be, if he overlooked what King had done. I just began to think, what additional damage would he uh, inflict? Maybe he next time he takes his rage out on, on his mother or his father or whoever else is around. I mean, that, that's a big question some of us have. Like, where did King's wife come from? And who else is going to avenge him and stuff like that? And we can talk about that stuff later. But uh, the potential harm that King could cause, you know, God has to protect against it, against the sanctity. What if you know, people living in the fear of his contempt? And no matter how he sliced it, King could not remain in Eden. Now, some have argued over the centuries that uh, the punishment did not go far enough. King should have paid with his own life for taking Abel's life. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. And had God, had God gone in that direction, um, and he would certainly have been justified. Yet note that he doesn't. And that's kind of, I think, the, 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 the turning point. That's the main idea here. God could have you know, executed King, capital punishment, but he doesn't. Um, he certainly doesn't condone what King did, but he had, God seems to have a greater purpose, and I would believe that that is to change King's heart. That's why it's a curse of Cain against the ground and not a destruction of Cain because God wanted to give Cain time. Uh, by not exacting uh, capital punishment, God was affording Cain the opportunity to turn from his wicked ways. If Cain would only show contrition, God would be able to redeem Cain's life. You know, in general, uh, God's, in God's economy, he allows genuine, sometimes painful repentance and forgiveness to actually be a cure for the curse. The curse is not the last word, in other words. Biblically speaking, whenever a curse comes, well, not whenever, but a lot of times when curse comes out, there's actually kind of a redemptive intent, redemptive uh, purpose behind it. So like when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden food and God banished them, when he cursed uh, the curse uh, fall of humanity, and one of the things that God did was he put in an angel, a guardian angel, to protect the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Right? And most scholars think that the reason for that is because in their sinful state, had Adam and Eve eaten of the tree of life, Right, they had eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they separated them from God. If they had eaten of the tree of life, then they would have eternally been stuck in that unredeemed state. And so the curse, the negative, the, 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 the preclusion was actually to help them, to uh, protect them. Right? Even the cross, the cross of Jesus, right? Paul makes an argument that in Galatians 3, he, he writes in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And the cross was sometimes referred to as a tree. Hence, Jesus' death on the cross allowed uh, Jesus to be cursed on our behalf for our redemption. So I think that um, what God was doing here in King's situation 
was not only to uh, respond to the terrible thing Cain has done, but also to show a way, a pathway for Cain to uh, return. And, and, and sometimes that's a good way to look at God's so-called punishment or his discipline or the adversity that comes our way. And sometimes a curse can turn out to be a blessing. God controls damage in these kind of marvelous ways, I think. When I was younger, my dad was really strict uh, to me. Like, uh, you know, he was very clear on what he wanted, and I had to kind of follow his guidance and guidelines and rules and, and all that. But my dad rarely punished me. Like, he was strict, but he rarely punished me. The only times that I can recall like really severe punishments, actual punishment was in one, in a couple of instances. And that was when I was disrespectful of my sisters, my older sisters, right? That was the trigger. And I remember getting really busted. I shared this like once, I think I called my sister a bad name and my dad lectured me for four hours straight. Four hours straight, nonstop. I didn't get it, word in casual. So when I look at that punishment, I go, oh man, and there were other times when, you know, I was like, man, I, I couldn't do anything, and like, I, I, I was told not to, you know, I wasn't permitted to do things that I wanted to do, and stuff. And I, I look back at that, and I, and I, at the moment, I cringed, and I hated it, and was very upset, right, very angry and mad. But when I look back, um, I think, in a sense, it was kind of redemptive for our family, because I learned the value of you know, respecting and appreciating and loving right? my own flesh and blood and older sisters, right? And that, I think, carried on for even till now, right? through the many years since uh, that time. You might feel that you're under a curse. You might feel there's a punishment. God is pushing you, oppressing you uh, very hard. The doors are closing. He's redirecting you. There's disappointments. Yeah. And, and there, there may be lessons to learn, right? There may be some kind of redemptive purpose that God has, because that's God's pattern. That's his way. Yeah. God keeps giving us chances. And I think he's giving Cain chances. When Cain was thinking about murdering Abel, God comes to him and says, don't do it, right? Repent. Sin is crouching at your door, ready to devour you. You can say no. Of course, Cain succumbs. And then God, after he kills, after Cain kills Abel, goes to Cain, where's your brother? Giving him yet another chance to say, I did it. Please forgive me. But no, Cain says, I'm my brother's keeper. And then God curses him, but not in the way that, you know, uh, we might expect, right? Even this, you'll be a restless wanderer, right? It seems like such a terrible thing to, you know, uh, wish upon a person or to say about a person, but kind of like the prodigal son story. That wandering, I think, was, again, a, supposed to bring Cain back. After he wandered, he would realize, I can't live without God. I can't live without the family that he gave me, that he would change and repent. We'll, we'll revisit that later in this story. Okay, so let's just talk about the complaint the reaction that Cain had to God's curse. Uh, this is his uh, effort at control. Even though the mercy of God is apparent, 
king reacts poorly to what God says. When the punishment is pronounced, I think he grumbles. This punishment is too much. You've crossed the line, God. Now, some people actually think Cain is being kind of penitent. They say that you can uh, translate the word punishment to sin. Like, so what Cain is suggesting, they suggest that what Cain is doing is lamenting and saying, instead of saying, this punishment is too hard for me to bear, he's saying, is this, is my sin too great to be forgiven? Almost as he's like, God help me. But I don't think so, right? My view is that there is no sense of compunction. What Cain is doing here is that he's trying to like tell God, okay, you know, you have a right to punish me, but I, this is unbearable. You're sending me out of your presence. I'm hidden from your presence, meaning you won't see me. You won't care for me. You've abandoned me, God. I'm being driven from this land. I'll be a restless wanderer. That means like no one will take care of me and I'll have no purpose. I'll be aimless and directionless, and whoever, and then he assumes the words, whoever finds me, they'll surely kill me, right? I think this is Cain's attempt to try to make God feel bad, right? Do you really, do I really deserve it? Is, is this fair? He's questioning, in my mind, God's goodness um, here. And I say this because when I am like caught in my tracks, when something is, let's say, some consequence, or whether it's from God or from whatever, from, from my life, when it all kind of comes crashing down on me, I exaggerate a lot. I, my, the complaining part, I start digging up stuff from the past and like little grievances, you know, become, the, you know, a, you make a mountain out of a molehill, as they say. There's so much that I just want to, like, throw, spew back at something negative that is happening to me. Like, if only Cain would see how much he had wronged Abel, how much grief he had caused. And if he had admitted that and, and broken down before God, he could have seen But he takes the opposite tack. But to me, if, if, if Cain was really repentant, God would have forgiven him, right? Possibly. But Cain is not repentant, and that's why things spiral the way that Think about how you react to negative things. Does that really make you like reflective and love God more and make you like a person? It, it, it might, but usually there's a lot of like stops and fits, you know, things along the way where we're shaking our fists, we're getting upset, we're moaning, we're, we're like blaming people, right? You usually go through that kind of time. And I think that's what, you know, Cain is doing, trying to you know, make this somehow uh, better, right? Again, Cain, he makes, even though God could have killed him on the spot as a penalty, God doesn't. Despite that, notwithstanding that, Cain says someone else is going to kill him, which you, know, you could argue is illogical. Cain is too busy pitying himself. His damage control is rather pathetic. That's why we need what God says next. This is the corrective part. So we've done. Uh, curse, complaint, and now we're at the corrective. God is way ahead of Cain. God says, no, uh, no one will kill you. 
no one will avenge Abel, right? Because if they do, there will be even more violence, sevenfold. Meaning, some scholars say that that, that means that seven others will die. Cain is killed, then the vengeance will boomerang back in seven, you know, so it'll be just an endless cycle of violence. And so God says, or some, uh, some interpreters say, the seven, that there'll be killings until the seventh generation, which is interesting because um, tomorrow, next time we'll talk about Lamech, who's the seventh descendant, seventh generation away from Cain, and he's a mass murderer, just two people, we'll get to that. Anyway, uh, what I think um, God is saying is that I am going to protect you, Cain. You will not die for this uh, sin, right? Cain is reassured that he will be protected from blood vengeance. This was God's damage control. Damage control of society so that you know, this kind of retaliatory killing would not take over, that the human race would not be uh, determined by vengeance and violence, but also that Cain, I keep going back to that, Cain would have an opportunity. Cain would have time. Cain had a way back. To me, that's God's mercy. Right? Like I said, God's damage control is always driven by mercy. Now, the mark of Cain. What kind of mark did God put on Cain so that nobody, when they, that any, when anybody saw it, they would not kill Cain, right? Some have suggested a tattoo, right? That's a, you know, some have said that maybe a different hairstyle than was accepted at the day. Others say it's a branding, some sort of like burn mark. We don't know, right? But somehow, it distinguished, right? It, when people saw it, they knew, oh, God is claimed king. God is king belongs to God, right? It was to shield him, right? to defend him from those that would take, uh, desire to take king's life, right? Imagine if king didn't have this. And people try to attack him. I'm sure he would have defended himself, right? And he's strong enough to kill evil. This was really uh, God's way to kind of limit uh, the, the consequences of, of what has uh, been done. God will not allow King to be destroyed. In other words, God is saying uh, He chooses to be bound. This is God's commitment uh, to King. And I feel like that is just rather amazing. It's just uh, it's rather amazing that uh, God would uh, be extend His mercy to Cain in this manner. Cain's not really a likable person, right? not only because of what he did, but how he uh, reacted. Yet God would keep him under His care. The mark itself was yet another form of mercy that God should keep up. We are studying Second Corinthians in our student groups and we'll be doing that in the next soon. And uh, there's this one uh, verse in the first chapter where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being a sign or a seal uh, upon, uh, upon the believers. 
So I, I thought about that in, in our regained state, right? We also have a mark on us, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the protection of the Holy Spirit. It's basically God's guarantee, his promise to us that we belong to him. Even though King's circumstances were kind of different, you know, the idea is the same. The mark was not something like anything other than a, a way to show that God was working in King's life. You know, God's damage control is still merciful, it's still redemptive. Unfortunately, last point, King's reaction, his ultimate uh, kind of attempt at control uh, is unfortunately to uh, try to negate what God said and to assume control of his life. And he does it through the form of building a city, right? Now, the word rest, the, the, the term restless wanderer, that's really interesting. To me, that's a great way to describe life without God. All of us are restless wanderers until we meet Christ, until we find rest uh, in Jesus. It's such a contemporary term, so modern. We're uh, directionless, unrooted, unsettled, wander. Um, there's this uh, phrase that somebody came up with. with uh, despite all the technological advancements, despite all that we've learned and can do, uh, modern uh, mankind is like a nervous Prometheus. Right? You guys know the Greek myth Prometheus who stole the fire from the gods and gave it to civilization. That's how, you know got in power, but you know, he was punished by uh, being chained to a rock, etc. But this idea that uh, we, are un, uh, we are free now, we're empowered, that even though humanity has asserted itself against all forces, even God, we're nervous. And I can just imagine Cain being so anxious, so like paranoid, that someone was coming after him. And so his reaction was to start to protect himself, to hunker down, to detach, to isolate. He already rejected any tie to Abel and to other, he had no other human duties. And so it's all about self-preservation. Um, and the city kind of represents the epitome of that. Again, it's not some beautiful metropolis, but it's more like a walled compound or fortress, high walls to keep out the undesirables, those that would threaten him. And that's what we do. The, to me, the ultimate expression of restless, how do you get out of restless wandering is to settle down and protect yourself to the maximum um, effect or benefit. That's what the land of Nod or Nod, east of Eden, represents. Right? A land where we don't depend on God, but a land where we depend on ourselves, what we can build. Cain couldn't force the ground to cooperate. So he started taking other things to, to build uh, that kind of protection uh, around him. Well, in, in the pandemic, right, our impulse, our instinct has been to what? Hunker down. Right? So some of us were forced to uh, you know, quarantine and all that kind of stuff. But even so, like now everyone can be like somebody who could hurt me, not intentionally, maybe intentionally, I don't know, <laughs> unintentionally, but so that kind of like we close in on ourselves, that insularity uh, begins to grow. And it's not only, I think it not only impacts us like 
uh, in a health sense or in a physical sense, but that starts to kind of seep into our like our psyche, and so we start becoming becoming more guarded. We start becoming a little more distant from people. We we trust less. Uh, to me, right? We see those kind of uh, cane-like instincts, uh, even in our uh, our pandemic context. We're in New York City, right, which is the greatest city in the world. And um, I think you see the epitome, the height of human human efforts to try to live life without God, uh, to, just, to be excellent, to strive to uh, uh, this kind of triumph. Right? Some of the greatest um, features of human Civilization and culture are present here. Finance, arts, fashion, advertising, real estate, politics, maybe not education, right? I think Boston is that still. But everything else, right? New York is uh, the best way to be. And New York has been that kind of, I think, that kind of hubris, that kind of, we can take on anything. We can get on an island and we can build skyscrapers and we can plop Central Park into the middle of the concrete jungle and, you know, no matter what happens, send us, you know, COVID, we don't care, we're going to survive. You know, it's this kind of mentality, which in some sense has its benefits, but in another, it's this cane-like attempt to fight off the restless wonder. It's our attempt at damage control, right? We see the world falling apart and we want to do the best for ourselves here and now. And then I say this not to criticize New York, I'm just going to extol them a little bit later, but because you see it everywhere. I told you about a book I read a while ago called The Edifice Complex. You heard of Edifice Complex, right? but E D I F I C, the Edifice Complex. Edifice is a big building. And it talks about the pyramids, Versailles, the Taj Mahal, the Kremlin, the World Trade Center, now the Freedom Tower. Yeah, that the rich and powerful over the years, right, they have used architecture to try to achieve immortality, impress their contemporaries, stroke their own egos, and make political and religious statements. Yeah, think about that. Again, building and doing great things and, and, and making civilization great, not necessarily sinful in and of itself, but why do we do it? Why have, have the these kind of places have been built. And I think it's because we want to, we feel the damage all around us, and it's our way to fight, our way to find significance outside of God. It's our way to make it east of Eden. I think New York City appeals to me in all of its, you know, human glory and all of its craziness, all this dirtiness and hecticness. And, Darwinism, all that, that appeals to me because I feel like one of the things that we should be doing is looking for the kings walking around, looking for those that have the mark of God on them. To me, the mark of God, I want to interpret it this way. It's not a physical thing, right? It's some indication that God is working in that person. And they may be far from God. They may be like hard-hearted. They may be sinful. They may be doing all these things. They may even have like, you know, killed. Quote, unquote. We were like that. 
if God found us, he sent people, right, to redeem us, to say, help us become saved, right? And so in the cities, canes are all around. But if we are able to recognize, if we're able to see, oh, that's the mark of God's mercy. That's the presence of God working, trying to get them to repent, to return, to see their need. Uh, then I think the city changes. Why we're in the city, what the city is for. Why do we, you know, Mona and I always like, especially in our craft department, we go, why do we have to live like this? We spend all this money <laughs> living here and then all this time cramming, you know, large things into, into tiny spaces. Why do we have to live like this? Because, you know, there's some kings around. We were the kings and God helped us. So we have to go outside the kings to see the mark, to see the sun. We have to slay the kings, not kill them. But save them. It's kind of like what Jesus says is, you know, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and women, right? If you think about fishing, basically you're taking like a happy fish and you're killing it, right? But that's not what, you know, when, when Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of people, you know, it's the other way around. You're taking them out of death and putting them in, into life, right? Uh, damage control. Are we. Following King's pattern or God's pattern? Let's pray. Lord, um, as we try to unpack this passage, these verses, these words, we pray that uh, you will bless um, the hearing and the application, the implementation of what uh, you say to us. We live in a uh, city that is named after all the Enochs of the world. We might be part of that process, but help us uh, to understand how you want to change, how you want to rectify the sin, the damage that sin has done, sin that we've done, sin that others have done. Help us, Lord, uh, to return to you. Help others to return to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.